Are you looking to improve your photography or start making documentaries for your business or for fun? Castlemaine Media School offers affordable online short courses in filmmaking and photographic composition. Learn principles from industry professionals so you can develop and apply skills using your own camera. To find out more, visit castlemainemediaschool.com. Proud Main FM sponsor. Are you living with a disability and need support? Contact Castlemaine Support Services for qualified in-home or community-based assistance and respite care. Also available, environmental services, including house and yard cleanups and carpet cleaning. Visit castlemainsupport.com.au for more information. Castlemaine Support Services, Main FM sponsor. A care provider with over 30 years experience, locally owned and family operated. Central Region Independent Support Services offer support for people living with a disability or anyone self-funded within Mount Alexander Shire. Social, personal and clinical care, home maintenance, cleaning and travel and transport. Visit their website at chris.com.au. Central Region Independent Support Services, Main FM sponsor. Down to Earth, 7pm Tuesday. On Community Radio 94.9 Main FM. Bad news and good news on the environment and social justice. We're all in this together. Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and district including Campbell's Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the state government, I'm here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat, funded from parliamentary budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM. The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stoneman's Book Room. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Hello listeners and welcome to another edition of The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network and sponsored by Stoneman's Bookroom. And today my guest is one of my heroes really and someone who shouldn't need any introduction, Tom Keneally. And he's on the line to discuss his latest novel, which is called Corporal Hitler's Pistol out now via Penguin. And here's a little bit about the novel. How did Corporal Hitler's Luger from the First World War end up being the weapon that killed an IRA turncoat in Kempsey, New South Wales in 1933? When an affluent Kempsey matron spots a young Aboriginal boy who bears an uncanny resemblance to her husband, not only does she scream for divorce, attempt to take control of the child's future and upend her comfortable life, But the whole town seems drawn into chaos. The hero of the First World War has a fit at a cinema and is taken into a psychiatric ward in Sydney. His Irish farmhand is murdered and a gay piano-playing veteran, quietly a friend to many in town, is implicated. Corporal Hitler's pistol speaks to the never-ending war that began with the war to end all wars. Rural communities have always been a melting pot, and many are happy to accept a diverse bunch as long as they don't overstep. Set in a town he knows very well, in this novel, Tom Keneally tells a compelling story of the interactions and relationships between black and white Australians in early 20th century Australia. And here is Tom Keneally's bio. He was born in 1935, and his first novel was published in 1964. And since then, he has written a considerable number of novels and non-fiction works. His novels include The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, Schindler's List, 
and The People's Train. He has won the Miles Franklin Award, the Booker Prize, the Los Angeles Times Prize, the Mondello International Prize, and has been made a literary lion of the New York Public Library, a Fellow of the American Academy, recipient of the University of California Gold Medal, and is now the subject of a 55-cent Australian stamp. He has held various academic posts in the United States, but now he lives in Sydney, where he is on the line now to take my call. Tom Keneally, it's an absolute honour to have you on The Quiet Carriage because you have been on my wish list for quite some time. So I'm really, I'm really glad that we've managed to do this. And I've been dreaming in a quiet, of being in a quiet carriage <laughs> since about 1940. <laughs> well, here you are. <laughs> and, and a massive congratulations on your latest novel, Corporal Hitler's Pistol. Now, your have I got this right? Because I was I was counting them through Wikipedia. Your forty fourth novel. You'll probably correct me here. Oh, it it may be yes. You don't know. There yeah. you go. <laughs> I, I don't know. No. It is. Uh, yeah, it's uh, certainly one of the. Um, it's certainly the latest. I can tell yeah. you that. <laughs> yeah. And also a lot of other writing as well you've done. You've done screenplays, non-fiction work. You, I always find your novels a bit of a history lesson. I always pick up something that I didn't know before, and the, the devil really is in the small details. For instance, you've got, um, you mentioned Aboriginal people here, uh, Aboriginal seats in the theatre, which I didn't know. And yes. a, a lot of, um, you know, a real reminder of the English and Irish distrust that was around prior to World War II. Um, yes. You seem like a real history buff still to this day. Is, is that is that true? Yeah, I'm like that with everyone. I mean, I've got to assure um, Chinese Australians and African Australians that I'm asking them about their ancestry, not because I don't think they should ever have come to Australia, but because... Everyone carries their ghosts with them, and the ghosts fascinate me. And, um, you know, um, the convicts in my wife's family, the convicts in my family mm -hmm. are, are a fascinating glimpse into preposterous, uh, a preposterous past. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, uh, uh, and thus, um, you know, I, I, I tend to see each discrete individual as carrying with them on their shoulders, at their side, a tribe of colourful ghosts. I love that. Yes, that's beautiful. And and this story has about four or five storylines put together, like like a lot of your yes. novels. How, and how... they're all um, they're all Kempsey storylines. When I was a Kempsey is a little town mm -hmm. up near uh, it thinks it's a metropolis, but somewhere between a small town and a metropolis up near Port Macquarie on the coast. Mm. It is one of those New South Wales t towns that used to be big because it was, or bigger by comparison with its neighbours, because it was the head of navigation at the river. Mm. And uh, the it was as far as steamboats could get, and uh, the there are a number of towns like that, and uh, they've been outnumbered now by the towns right on the coast, which have become uh, uh, gorgeous towns like Port Macquarie and so on. Uh, and it's in a valley that has a huge Aboriginal population. A, a tribe called the Thungudi, uh, and uh, which has produced many sporting heroes, actors, etc. Uh, and uh, the Thungudi are still numerous up there. Uh, they live in blacks camps, and as happened in many Australian towns in the past, there was a lot of abuse of um, Aboriginal women. And so you got uh, a half-caste uh, uh, um, progeny of this strange collision, uh, this strange 
violation occurring between the two races. Um, and up in our town, my aunts had a dress store. And this bloke used to come in who was considered a genius musician who could hypnotize chickens, <laughs> whose nickname was Chicken. Mm. And he wanted to see in their store the latest from Sydney, the latest fashions from Sydney. He also made up um, Aboriginal women. My, my mother uh, used to work in the cosmetics at the town uh, shop, which mm-hmm. is on the front cover of the book, Barsby's, and um, she sold him um, makeup. And it wasn't really for him. It was for the Aboriginal women he made up so so the idea of a bloke on the margins Mm. as the towns tolerated tolerated uh gay because he's um a a good musician uh and uh a town bit of a town favorite but tolerated to a point Mm. uh who makes up aboriginal women this just sounded too good a character in the end, to pass up, and uh, the uh, I've I've never written about someone who was gay before, so it's quite an excursion mm. for an old heterosexual boofhead like me <laughs> to make. Uh, but um, I, I wanted to write about him because when I think I live near a place at. Manly in Sydney, where the ferries go. And within about 300 metres of here, there's a cliff above the Pacific into which a number of um, gays were chucked, or from which a number of gays were thrown uh, in the 60s and 70s and as late as the 80s. And so there is a real, you know, I, I, I don't want it to sound like a massacre of thousands, but there is a a, a genuine murder ground there from wow. which people used to chuck gays. And I had, in my childhood, all the automatic as, uh, prejudices against uh, gays. So I, I thought of this poor bloke who used to come to my aunt's store and who used to play the piano in the cinema. Uh, I thought... He would never get to encounter the days of more tolerance. Mm. And uh, one day I heard Armistead Morpin read, and the audience, a lot of the audience were gays who treated him, of course, as a savior because he wrote short stories so they identified what they had been through. And it was, uh, there were all these blokes about my age who'd come out in the 50s, 60s, 70s and been rejected by their father. And there's this huge obsession with the father mm-hmm. uh, amongst these men. And I thought, these guys are just like me. Yeah. You know, I, I've got a father obsession as well, far more than my father would like me to have. We all have a a father obsession, and so I wanted to write about his struggles and strife Mm. um, at that stage, but also about veterans. The other aspect of that period of history, when I was born in 1935, there were still plenty of veterans of that horrible war in Europe and the Middle East, uh, World War I, and they... um, were still dying of World War One. Uh, they had osteomyelitis. They had gas damage to their lungs. Uh, some of them were still occasionally suiciding. And so I was living amongst the detritus, the, the damage that mm. cast off the, the litter of World War One still. And uh, uh, so I have a very damaged digger to write about also. Mm-hmm. And then I have a woman, The another thread in the book, a woman goes walking in town. She's a pillar of the society. Mm-hmm. Everyone calls her by her missus name. 
and everyone goes shopping on a Friday afternoon. And she sees a half-caste kid in town mm. who bears to her authentically and undeniably the features of her husband. And oh. the question is, when a woman found that her husband had uh, a half-Aboriginal kid, what would you do? Would there be racial <laughs> hysteria? Would there be hysteria against him? Would there be, there, would there be uh, anger, hurt? There'd certainly be hurt. Uh, would there be anger? And this woman, surprisingly, has, is very angry at her husband. But she feels an, an impulse to to save the boy, to save the boy. But the boy doesn't want to be saved because he belongs to a family of people who have held on for a long time. And his uncle is still a, a fully initiated man. And so it's uh, the struggle between this woman and her husband uh as so often, he's going to get forgiven if he will just acknowledge it, mm. but he can't acknowledge it. And um, therefore, she becomes his enemy yeah. because she seeks a divorce. And uh, so her story is big in there, too. And then the Irish Civil War was yes. only 10 years over, and blokes were still fighting it. And there were cases in America and Australia from that civil war in 1922-23. There were cases of blokes being beaten up or killed for what happened in that civil war. And the civil war was absolutely terrible. It, mm. it began fraternally with everyone being very careful not to kill each other, and it ended savagely with um, uh, with blokes being attached to landmines and the landmines blown up. And so uh, the men who informed on the rebels were often pursued to the ends of the earth. And this is a case of a man who gave information to the Free State Army, the official army, about rebels. Yes. And he's still being pursued. And uh, these things happened in the 30s. And then in far away uh, Germany, of course, a uh, rather thin-faced, uh, zealot-looking man became the German Chancellor. Yep. Now, on the night of the 19th of July, 1916, the Australian 5th Division was arrayed against Hitler's um, uh, a division that included Hitler's uh, regiment. And Hitler's regiment was right opposite the 53rd Australian regi uh, battalion that came from up that way in New South Wales. And so um, uh, this man has held Hitler in the book, has held Hitler prisoner, and is released by Hitler... <laughs> early the next morning, as a number of Australians were. It's very interesting to think of Hitler before he became a thorough monster. He was already a absolute anti-Semite, but he wasn't yet the thorough monster that he would become. Mm. And the idea of him uh, letting a, uh, a, an Australian uh, of German background uh, back into the Australian lines is very interesting. When I was a kid, there was a cranky old farmer up in this town, and some young men told me, probably apocryphally, that he claimed to own Hitler's pistol, that he'd taken right. Hitler prisoner the night of the uh, 19th of July, 1916. And it's quite possible. <laughs> and so I... I made it a fact. I, I'm a bit of a uh, fan of things that connect Australia to unknown people, in, or unexpected, mm -hmm. unexpected connections, you know. Mm -hmm. The fact that um, 
Kerensky, the first president of um, uh, of Russia after the Tsar, the fact that he married a girl from Brisbane. <laughs> I, I get excited by yeah. these things. I get excited by the, the fact that there was a family with Napoleon on St. Helena, and they were a young British family, and they were the providors, the grocers, to Hitler's household. Uh, and they got on so well with him that they were exiled. They were thrown off the island, and then finally they were sent to New South Wales. Wow. And they had had the experience of Hitler using their granny flat, the equivalent of their summer house. Right. And they were intimates of, did I say Hitler? Um, yes. um Bonaparte. Right. Uh, Napoleon Bonaparte on St. Helena. And they are sent to Australia because they have got too close to Napoleon. And so the fact that there is such a family, that such a thing happened, uh, fascinates the hell out of yeah. it. And that a, there was a girl who grew up in Australia who had had Napoleon for a playmate at the age of 13 <laughs> and who wrote a memoir about it. That is fascinating to me. Wow. And uh, so this is another example of an unlikely contact between Australians and Hitler. And Hitler's pistol end up, ends up in 1933 being used in a murder in this town in New South Wales. So there's the story for you, Corporal Hitler's pistol. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and the Australian Community Network and brought to you by Stoneman's Book Room. And now we will return to my interview with the author, Tom Keneally. And, and it's, it's incredible how you bring all these strands together as well. And what I wanted to ask you, you know, we're in the 2020s now, what has taken you back to 1930s? Kempsey. Why why are you writing about that now? In particular the chicken story. Why have you why have you sat for so long on that on that character and that story idea? Well everyone's gone, so there's that. Mm -hmm. Everyone's gone. Um I heard a story about a veteran that had a nervous breakdown mm -hmm. at that stage. Uh and then my mother before she died in this century, told me that she was the girl uh, who used to sell the cosmetics to uh, Chicken mm -hmm. for his makeup of uh, Aboriginal women. And of course, there was no specialist uh, makeup for dark complexions in those days. And on my father's side, my father was a projectionist in the cinema. And so he knew him through being a projectionist and had many chicken stories. Chicken gave him, my father, a lesson in hypnotizing chicken. Right. Because chicken's father was a sleeper cutter, a great Australian bushcraft. And sleeper cutters' families were always hard up. And chicken used to hypnotize chickens for his mother so that they would provide dinner. And uh, he took, he gave my father some lessons in chicken hypnotism. Right. So my father carried on this tradition of hypnotizing chickens. <laughs> right. And uh, um, so it it was the my parents gone, and then I have to say that it's the case of an American. There was an American kid chucked off this track I could take you to. It's only about, as I say, 200, 300 kilometers from my place. And it's the cliff, uh, the, the Pacific, a cliff of the Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, man's, that man was killed in the uh, 1980s. And his brother developed an algorithm that enabled pictures to be digitalized, to be sent digitally. Right. And so he was a wealthy bloke 
and he came to Australia. He's he's um, his brother who'd been who had, according to the coroner, suicided off mm-hmm. this cliff. Uh, he came to Australia. He spoke to police. He used private investigators. He won the police over. He uh, got a new uh, round about the time. I started this book. He had had a new um, coronial inquiry, which decided that the boy had been murdered by person or persons unknown. Right. But within a few months, the police did arrest a man for his murder, and he has been charged with the murder. Right. And so the brother, uh, who had deep pockets, was able to pursue that verdict and win everyone over and and do new science on it and, and employ private detectives. And not every family can do that. Uh, but so we had a kind of documented murder just there, just where, uh, you know, a lot of people walk there because it's so beautiful and um, a lot of people don't know it's a murder site, not only for this kid, but for a number of others. And um, uh, I thought it's time to come clean about being an old, um, you know, a child of that old uh, poofter-hating Australia. Yeah. Uh, And uh, we're moving out of that now. And uh, I I was just um, uh, wanted to dot my hat to that part of our community. Because we can't go on murdering and excluding mm-hmm. them. Uh, it's okay to say, I, I'm glad I'm a heterosexual. I'd, I'd rather not be a, a gay. I, I think it's okay to say that. But when you get to round to saying that kid is homosexuality, a pufta, let's kill him. That cannot survive. That can't go on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, yeah. You've had a writing career in published terms that spans over 50 years now, and presumably you're not still in this racket for the money, and and you've also explored a lot of the themes you wanted to explore, and you've said a lot of the things you wanted to say. So what is it that endures you? What is it that that keeps you going and keeps you writing? Well, there's still subjects out there. I wish I'd been as mature as I am now, when I was 35, and I wish I had the petrol in me that when I was 35. <laughs> mm. uh, but the uh, there come up stories that are uns- ancestral stories, like the story of chicken and the story of the the black stamps and the way men used to go up there and and buy a woman and uh, make you know, often issue threats too and throw their weight around and be terrible bullies. Uh, and um, not in all cases, but in many. And uh, uh, as late as the 1970s, there there were people still, uh, as late as, even after that referendum on Aboriginal in 1967, giving the Commonwealth power to make more civilized rules for dealing with uh, the Aboriginal community. Uh, as late as that, there was a Blake still going out to the Blacks camp with rosehip spirits and methylated, rosehip syrup and methylated spirits in a mix and was doing diet deals mm-hmm. on that absolutely toxic, um, toxic myth mix and uh, I've always wanted to write about that dynamic in that town you know Um, and I I wanted to um, because it's unacknowledged territory um, and I also wanted to um, uh, celebrate that town and the rest of it
You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and the Australian Community Network and brought to you by Stoneman's Bookroom. And now we will return to my interview with the author, Tom Keneally. Uh, a couple of years ago, for many years, I wanted to write about Charles Dickens' youngest son hmm. who settled over your way. Uh, you're in South Australia, aren't you? Uh, Castlemaine, Goldfields, Victoria. Oh, Goldfield, mm. now Castle, man. <laughs> Lola, Lola Montez was booed in Castle, man. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's a pub there that's got the big room in it where Lola Montez performed and was was booed. It's um, uh, a, 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 an astonishing. Everyone else yeah, right. loved her, but the Castle Mainers had a mind of their own. Or she might have been off that night. In any case... Right. Um, <laughs> the uh, uh, in Western New South Wales, uh, two of Dickens' sons turned up. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, we were another world for convicts and economic refugees, and then, round about eighteen fifty, the British gentry decided it was the place to send their their young, particularly if they're young were not likely to flourish in the UK. Now, Dickens only had one clever son that he considered clever, and he became a lawyer. But he was in in some despair about the others, and he sent two to Australia. Under the belief that people then had that Australia could redeem a hapless young man. And... uh, his hapless youngest son was uh, Plorn Dickens, Edward mm-hmm. Dickens, and he uh, ended up up in that part of New South Wales beyond the Darling. He always had great affection for right. it. Trollope sent a son too. So there was one <laughs> time when the Wilcannia Cricket Club had a son of Trollope and two sons of... Um, uh, of Dickens in it, wow. and uh, <laughs> yeah. in in any case, that that idea of Australia being the redemp- place where hapless sons came for redemption mm-hmm. is very much in British literature. You know, in the importance of being earnest. Yeah, um, Algernon uh, Jack says to Algernon, "Your uncle said at dinner last night that you must choose between this world, the next world." and Australia. And that was, uh, therefore, if you didn't measure up either academically or morally, and in the case of the Dickens boys, it was not measuring up academically, uh, then you could be sent here for your own good. And your father or your family would often keep you here with a remittance. You had to stay here to get this bank draft every month that kept you going. <laughs> and uh, so all, all that fascinated me. New fascinations emerge at different a- ages. And so I wrote a book called The Dickens Boy, which I hope anyone out there who who read it loved, mm-hmm. because it is, a, it is a fascinating story. And this story of... Hitler being taken prisoner, this story of the Aboriginal and the white matron who sees a half-caste kid with a husband's speeches, and the business of the Irish Civil War, and how yep. many men came here. What, what gave me the Irish story was that I was out in the west of Ireland one day, and it was blowing a rare gale, of course, and... Um, an Irish public servant had a little house out there, mm-hmm. and he said, do you know Enfield? Well, Enfield is a uh, railway suburb in Sydney. Yes. And he said, my, my father, who was one of the rebels in uh, the Civil War, uh, went out there and spent 10 years there working on the railway. said that a whole section of uh, gangers on the New South Wales Railway, who were wanted uh, rebels, wanted by the Irish Free State. 
And um, uh, so, again, you had, you're out in, in Mayo on the west coast of America where on a fine day you can nearly see Newfoundland and, uh, and uh, the U.S. And you meet a man whose father spent 10 years in Enfield in mm-hmm. Sydney. <laughs> and uh, it's crazy. these weird connections that made me think, there's a story about these IRA, IRA guys uh, working on the railway in Australia or on dairy farms, yeah. farms as mine does. And um, so I wanted to tell that story too. Yeah, right. And can we talk a little bit about writing? Um, does it get easier? I mean, are you writing better than you did before? Do, do writers get better as they go along? Yeah, I'm feeling at the moment, if you ask us, we say we're better, but we do, one area we do get better in is that when the book abandons us, when the book orphans us about halfway through, or when we find out it's just another book, there's an emotional downturn. It's as intense as writers know, as you know very well from your work, it's, it can be as intense a failure of the delusion that's keeping you going mm-hmm. as when you fall out of love with someone. Mm. And so uh, you, when you're young and that happens to your book, you take it very seriously. And you don't take it nearly as seriously when you're older because right. you know by then that the answer to writing is to write. And if you can't think what to write, write any stale old crap. (laughs) And ultimately, you'll hit your vein. Um, So you can't write a lot when you're in that depressed state, but write something. Uh, Someone who teaches, Black Paul McPhee, who wrote a very good book called First Draft, He's a non-fiction writer, mm-hmm. and he's an expert on writing non-fiction. But it still applies to fiction as well. He said, when you can't write anymore and you don't know where to go, write a letter as if to an aunt you don't quite know, mm-hmm. you don't quite like either, uh, because you don't like your book at this stage. <laughs> and you write a letter about the problems of your book and what you want to write next and why it won't come. And so you write about that. Wow. Dear Auntie Irma Gilda, uh, the problem with this book is that he gives example, I'm writing a book about bears. Do I start with bears pre the human species or do I start with the special relationship between the bear and the Eskimo, or do I start, you know, do I start with natural history, or do I start with human contact, or do I start with recorded history? Uh, Do I start now in the age of global warming where the uh, the polar bear uh, can't travel across frozen bays in the way he used to be able to, mm. because he fell through the ice, to get to ancestral, traditional sources of fish, yeah. of cod, etc., etc. Um, where do I begin with the present crisis, with human contact, with historic contact, with the relationship with between humans and the bear, or the bear per se? And you write about that. If I was writing the chapter about the first contact between humans and bears, I would write it. And if you write that long enough, you end up with two or three chapters worth of chapters. Yeah. <laughs> you end up with a, a chapter of each of those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the answer to despairing of writing is to write. I know this, but I don't. When I get depressed about writing, I don't um, do it as um, as much as I should. Mm-hmm. But I do know 
not to take it seriously. There's no need to leave your wife or husband. There's no need to be grouchy with your kids. Uh, don't take it as seriously as all that. You probably need an extra glass of wine at dinner, <laughs> unless you're an alcoholic. Yeah. And, uh, and patience. Because the terrible thing about the book, that while you're writing the book, the book writes you. And sometimes the book dips out on you. because the, And then you've got to wait for a couple of days. It's interesting that often there'll be a eureka moment where after a lot of anguish we say, oh, but why don't we do so-and-so? An option, uh, a narrative option you've never thought of before. Mm -hmm. uh, the great thing is, that your subconscious, your and your collective unconscious, is so involved that the comfort should be that it goes on working on your crappy novel after you <laughs> have clocked off mm -hmm. and decided to drink a lot of wine. It keeps working on your crappy novel after you're sleeping in despair and having horrible dreams. It goes on working 24-7. And really, your story, like all the stories of humankind, comes from the collective unconscious, this great anthology of stories that we carry around with us, that is in all of us. This great story, this, this great collection of avatars, of archetypal stories and archetypal beings, this great collection of moral questions that you can, moral templates that we can pick up, um, templates of evil, uh, stereotypes, mm -hmm. um, we can, as Jung called them, I quite believe that our unconscious ultimately deals with the novel our conscious can't deal with at mm -hmm. the moment. Um, and so writing what you can helps and waiting helps yeah. and sudden uh, it, it's funny how often we strain the frontal lobes of our brain trying to come up with an option but it, it's funny how often an option floats to the surface it's very interesting I, I do cryptic crosswords and the answers to many cryptics are very much like plot options. Yeah. They come not because you exercise the, your your conscious brain. They come floating up. Oh yes, the name of that actor is <laughs> Ray Fiennes, or yeah. the name of that politician was. And uh, I, I think. Um, uh, I'd like writers to be more consoled when they suffer this quite daunting failure mm -hmm. of faith uh, because the the thing is that uh, your relationship with the manuscript will be repaired and you will start again. It'll just take a couple of days for your unconscious and individual and your collective unconscious to come up with the option. Mm -hmm. So uh, don't despair. No wrist-slitting allowed. Um, <laughs> uh, I have, have written a chapter for a book that's coming out this year called The Last Good Rant, or A Bloody Good Rant, they've called it. I wanted to call it A Last Good Rant, yeah. in which I wrote, write... Uh, a chapter called Any Mug Can Write a Novel, and I set out to prove it because I'm a yobbo from the ends of the earth. I I spent my early years in a bush town, mm -hmm. and my formative years and young manhood in a suburb of Sydney called Homebush, where they ultimately had the Olympics 
but yes. it had no such cachet when I was young. <laughs> so that so that a review of my first book said, "Where in God's name is Homewood?" <laughs> and and uh, uh, you know, I. Uh, why was I able to write a book? I knew nothing. I was a social outcast for various reasons, mainly because I'd failed to become a priest. I'm very mm. grateful I did now, but it was very disorienting. And, and of course, as a former, you can't say to a girl at a bar, and there were very few girls at bars in those days, you can't say when she says, what do you do, uh, Oh, I'm between jobs. Uh, what did you do before? I was a monk. You know, yeah. that's not exactly. It's a very peculiar <laughs> girl who's turned on by yeah. that, <laughs> or a very compassionate one. <laughs> Anyhow, um, uh, I think that it is true that not maybe every mug, but it's always when, often when people face a crisis that they withdraw a bit and they do the writing. Yeah. And some days you will be ecstatic to do it and you will feel when you're really writing and all those voices from your collective unconscious are working in you, you feel a bit above yourself. Mm. You feel a transcendence that is intoxicating and very healthy. But you pay for that transcendence uh, with your um, uh, with with your uh, moments of despair. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I believe it was W. B. Yeats. It's attributed to a number of people. There are two quotes. One is uh, one death is a one man's death is a uh, tragedy for the million deaths are just statistics. There's an argument about who said that. Right. And there's an argument about who said only begin. But only begin is the answer. If there's anyone out there, and God bless, there are still young people uh, trying to write. They And they're wondering when to start. Don't take an extra class. Don't feel you need an extra class. Don't feel you want to do more research. Start. Mm. Um, And uh, whoever said only begin, that should be (laughs) engraved on our foreheads at birth by the the malicious fairy who stops by our cradle and says, this one will (laughs) be a writer. Watch him sort the bones out of that one. <laughs> uh, the uh, um, and thank God, there's so many young men and women trying to do it. And and what is hard is that publishing is not the same as it was. And publishing hmm. is never the same. Wait a few years, and it's never the same yeah. as it was. Um, and. Uh, I suspect a lot of, well, let me say it this way. If James Joyce was hawking Ulysses Mm -hmm. around the publishers of Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Adelaide, and so on, he wouldn't get an offer on that. It would be considered to be editorially too difficult. Mm Mm-hmm. And he'd be, they'd say, could you write shorter sentences, please, James? Uh, And uh, in any case, uh, for that reason, it is touching that the young want their book to be published in this ancient Gutenberg form, as well as, of course, electronically and in other ways. The Gutenberg, because we're animals and because... As cute on in the digital and IT world as the young are, but because we are tactile animals, we can, we love a book. We Mm -hmm. love a physical book. It doesn't mean we don't love the others. All the others are enormously useful. But, um, you know, to be able to hold up 
to be a young writer from Castle Maine. Mm-hmm. And go in the street and they say, oh, is your book around? <laughs> and be able to hold up the physical book in a way you can't hold up the digital and say, this is the little bastard right here <laughs> in my hands. <laughs> they still want that, and that's great. It's a good feeling. Uh, mm. And um, the... Um, you know, a lot of the future. There's still a lot of writing in the in the Celts and the yeah. Irish Cornish and the people up in northern from whose ancestors come from Northern Ireland. But I know there are a lot of Cornish down your way because yes. uh, Castlemaine had great uh, smelting work for the gold, didn't they? Yep, and a lot of uh, the, uh, the gold miners were Cornish as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A- so. Uh, they they were good chapel men, but they still uh, chatted up girls. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, the uh, what an interesting part of Victoria you live. Uh, I, I love that area. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was last there just before COVID, going to Falls Creek. Oh, went up yeah. to Falls Creek. Yeah, and uh, I, I took my wife and sister-in-law. Because Judy and I still cross-country ski. Right. And uh, uh, where uh, she's, I think she might be one of the oldest. She's 86. Mm -hmm. And um, in any case, um, the story is only begin and trust the gods of your unconscious and subconscious to yeah. work things out for you. Uh, but keep writing. Uh, I mean, there's... Surely, if you get stuck, you can write 300 words of anything. Yes. Even something that says, look, if I knew what was going to happen in this chapter, I don't. If, if I wrote what I'm going to write now, it would go like this. Yeah. And so you write... You're pursuing a quite hackneyed resolution to your problems. Yeah. Like, and then a big rock fell on their heads, <laughs> and they all died. <laughs> and you're, you're using deus ex machina and committing every sin that you can. But in doing that, you often come up with a solution, because writing engages that part of the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and storytellings are always have always been mysterious. Um, yeah. Storytelling has always come. There are story. There are old stories about humans who stole stories and were pursued by the gods for stealing them. Yeah. So you know you you're you're stealing the the thunder of the gods. Yeah. And. Uh, you have to expect the gods, being the mongrels they are, will make, you know, Zeus and all those other buggers, <laughs> and Finn McCool and all those Celtic buggers yeah. will make you pay for it. Yeah. I... Because you are in their territory. Yeah. Um, the um, And uh, so, so I hope that gives comfort to the young. I think it does. A fabulous answer. And can I can I just ask you because we are running out of time? How you've been coping in the these unprecedented times of a global pandemic? How's, how's it been for you? Well, you know, writers write about it a lot, and we say often at literary festivals, "Oh, the isolation, oh, the loneliness," <laughs> <laughs> and we never told them. All the opportunities for drink at any hour of the day. <laughs> we never told them that. We left that yeah. Now they know it. <laughs> now they know that Mount, the slopes of Mount Isolation are Indeed. covered with yeah. empties of writers. Yeah. But it, it, is a, it is a human thing that my grandson is doing an honours degree and he's missing the physical university. Yep. Um, we miss physical things. I told the story yeah. that my my mother and I were in a 
shop, I was about six, mm-hmm. when Singapore fell. I was six, yeah. And Singapore fell, and a woman in the pharmacy waiting to be served broke into tears. Mm. And the woman, in those days, that was very embarrassing because Australians weren't very demonstrative. We prized ourselves mm-hmm. on ma- not making a fuss, you know. Mm-hmm. So this woman, this woman's friend said to the pharmacist and to my mother, uh, you'll have to forgive Mrs. Ellis. Her son is in Singapore. Singapore had fallen about 36 hours before this. This woman was facing a future that was worse than she would have predicted. That her son was facing a travail and a journey that would kill most of the young, or a great number of the young, I should say. And uh, my mother, her her friend hugged her, and then my mother hugged her, because my own man was in the Middle East, and my mother... And that mother shared, um, you know, the same loss in a way. And uh, that embrace, that human impulse to embrace uh, and to comfort and to turn up and to bring casseroles and to to hold shoulders and to all that, that that is taken from us Mm. by COVID. So it... um, it's proving, mind you, we've grown an extra limb called Zoom. Yeah. But um, apart from growing an extra <laughs> limb called Zoom, we're still very physical. Students want to go to a physical university if they can. Yeah. People want to go to a football game if they can. They want to go to live theatre if they can because the of the there is a uh, unutterable but real contact that comes through all the people who are appreciating the play with you or the movie Mm. and all this is no longer possible so it's phenomenal it look i think the gods got tired of us around with the truth (laughs) and saying that the age of truth was over (laughs) that we were living in a post-truth world the word of the year for the uh oxford english dictionary in 2017 was post-truth mm-hmm. and Trump and ScoMo acted as if truth there wasn't no truth is can be um, man, can be uh, massaged mm-hmm. into anything you want it to be Tom Keneally thank you so much for joining me today on The Quiet Carriage it truly has been an honour and a huge congratulations on your latest novel, Corporal Hitler's Pistol, out now via Penguin. Tom- and very readable for works from an old codger. I definitely, definitely. We're not sure if it's your forty-fourth or forty. We're not sure which novel, but it's it's it definitely is. Thank you so much, Tom. Not at all. See you round. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and brought to you by Stoneman's Bookroom. And that was my interview with Tom Keneally on what a buzz it was. And it was a long one too. Didn't even have time for any music today, but it was a real treat getting to interview someone who is one of my heroes. And that is all we have time for today on The Quiet Carriage. A big thank you for tuning in. If you want more information about the show, you can look for me under all the socials under the name Paul J. Laverty. Until next time, keep reading. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. Moving can be stressful, but at Stressless Moves, we move your belongings like they're our own and can professionally pack and unpack your cartons. Stressless Moves offers door-to-door service locally or interstate. We do a weekly run to Melbourne with single items or a whole truckload. Leave the stress of moving to us. Call Jessica or Donna on 0427 046 001 for an obligation-free quote on your next move. Stresslessmoves.com.au, a proud sponsor of Main FM. The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and authors with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stoneman's Bookroom. Listen to us every Friday from 1pm on 94.9 Main FM, mainfm.net, and on demand 
just follow the links on our website. The Quiet Carriage. All aboard. The Tap Room is home to Shed Shaker Brewing and is open six days a week at the Mill in Castlemaine. Featuring craft beer brewed on site, local ciders and a brand new expanded menu serving food all day. With live music on Friday nights and Sunday arvos, good times are guaranteed. Visit the website or follow the Tap Room on socials for all the latest updates and special events. The Tap Room is a lively sponsor of Main FM.